The GLSA acknowledges that the Melbourne Law School is situated on stolen Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation, of which sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to this episode of GLSA's Think Global, Careers in International Law podcast series. My name is Bella, and I'm one of the co-ops for the GLSA Events and Engagement Portfolio. And I'm really excited uh, to be joined today by international human rights lawyer, Jackie Zaltzberg. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So jumping straight in, um, you've been working with the United Nations in the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights for the past 10 years. Could you tell us about the various roles you've held during this time? Yeah, sure. So, um... Maybe I'll start at my current role. I work now as part of the Asia-Pacific section, so I'm what they call a desk officer. I cover countries including Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, Malaysia and Singapore. And so it's a bit of a tricky role to describe because it's political, it's legal, it's a liaison role, it's substantive, um, it's a little bit of everything. I'm quite new to this particular role because um, I've only been doing this a little while, but basically we're following human rights incidents in those countries. We work closely with UN country teams in the countries where that's possible. We try and raise cases with governments, work with civil society partners and, and other UN agencies and international organisations. And depending on what the High Commissioner herself decides to do in a particular case, we might take particular actions. And then there's also a big technical cooperation side of the work, which is training, working with governments and working with governments and UN country teams around the human rights mechanism. So that would be where there's treaty body submissions, where there's special procedure visits, um, various things like that. Yet yeah, it's big, so it's hard to describe in a few words, but... Um, before that, the last few years, I was working for what's called the International Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar. And so I was an investigator there working on the Rohingya crisis. And um, that was probably one of the, the most poignant experiences of my career so far because I, I joined the team just before the crisis happened of the great violence in Myanmar in September 2017. And then the outbreak of violence happened and we were sort of deployed directly to Bangladesh and we were in Bangladesh as people were crossing the border, taking testimonies from survivors of what fact-finding mission found to be could have been a genocide. So it involved two years of multiple missions to the camps to take testimonies from men, women, children, usually not children, but um, survivors of brutal violence, of sexually, sexual and gender-based violence, um, torture, disappearances and essentially crimes against humanity and potentially genocide and, and was very involved in um, the writing of the big reports. So that was a, a big few years and took a little bit of time to recover from um, professionally and personally. And then prior to that, I spent a lot of years in what's called the Special Procedure Division of the Office of the High Commissioner, which is supporting as a legal advisor various special procedure mandates holders. So these are the special rapporteurs. So I worked with the special rapporteur on minorities for a number of years, the minority issues, the special rapporteur on migration, and the special rapporteur on Indigenous peoples. And in those roles, we do sort of missions. So, I mean, you would probably all know about the country reports on Australia from various specialist rapporteurs. I went 
been on about 10 missions around the world to various countries looking at different issues and, and writing the reports. And I think the, the highlight of all this work is really being able to talk to people on the ground and amplify their voices where they don't necessarily have the platform to do so and using the name of the UN to make sure that testimonies get heard and ideally action is, is, is credibly taken. Jackie, from what you've talked about just now, I have so many <laughs> questions in this, um, this conversation you could go in so many different ways, but you know, the point of this podcast is to learn about how you got into this field. Um, and so we're here to learn about your journey. So do you mind if we go back to your time at um, university? I understand that you uh, graduated from Monash and got a Bachelor of Arts and Laws. Um, and you participated in the Jessup International Law Moot Court. Um, your honours thesis was about analysing um, Indigenous rights jurisprudence in different systems. It seems as though you came into your career with a clear picture in mind of the work you wanted to do. Is that right? Or what catalyzed your decision to have a career in law, particularly in human rights law? I think I was always interested in international affairs and I wasn't so sure about the law part, I must say. And so I started the law degree actually quite unsure whether I would pursue the law degree. I was much more dedicated at the outset to my arts degree. I was doing international relations. I took Spanish. I was interested in languages and I'd thought about, oh, maybe working as a journalist. Um, but then as sort of law school went on, I didn't enjoy the first year that much, I must say, you know, um, contracts. And I thought, what am I doing here? And this isn't my language. And But I think it, it was a good discipline to sort of study and learn. But I was always quite clear that I didn't want to be a traditional lawyer, um, for better or for worse. And I'm not saying that that's the right choice, but it was the choice for me. You know, so I think I, I took law school as a opportunity to try and focus my international work and so one of the big I think opportunities that I was given in law school was I was uh, allowed to do a internship through the Caston Centre at Monash to the Australian mission in Geneva actually where I now ended up and so I spent six months in Geneva in my third year of law school working with the Australian permanent mission and following what was then the Commission of Human Rights. And I think seeing things in action were very inspiring. And then I, I thought, oh, no, I'll, I want to keep being exposed to practical international law. And so I then went and did a second internship for six months in Costa Rica with an organisation called the Centre for Justice and International Law. And their focus is litigating human rights cases in the Inter-American Commission and Court of Human Rights. And I was supported by the Foundation for Young Australians for that internship. So I feel like these these were really seminal experiences where then I started to see the value of having a law degree of what you can do as an international lawyer. And when I came back to Melbourne, I was, I was much more dedicated to try and finish my studies. And that, that also sort of led me into what I decided to do my honours law thesis in, which was looking at the jurisprudence of the inter-American human rights system on Indigenous rights, which was some of the cases that I actually, you know, had been working on as an intern, as a fellow at Sahil. So... I can't say that I went into law studies very sure that this was the right thing, but I, it really grew with me. And then opportunities sort of as they arose made it seem much more viable. Sure. Sounds like the passion for international affairs and relations was where it started. And then the practicalities of being able to use a system of law grew on you. And it sounds like you just continued that practical work after graduating Monash. You went um, and completed your PLT while working as a 
Judges Clerk in the Supreme Court of Victoria. So could you tell us more about that role and why you chose that at that stage? Yeah, I mean, after I finished my law degree, I wanted to be able to be admitted to practice, but I wasn't sure that articles in a firm was was something that was going to suit me. Um, And so I thought an associateship would be a good way to sort of combine the practical, it was kind of new at the time, the practical legal training option. Um, And so I was lucky to be able to find a job with a judge. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the year and a half that I worked with him far more than I ever expected to. I think it was quite fascinating to be sitting up in criminal trials, drug trafficking, murder trials, sexual violence, rape, um, and then some civil litigation. And and often the judges rotate as well. So there was even a a short stint on the Court of Appeal. So to really see um, law in practice is, I think, quite different from studying it. Um, and sort of seeing the barristers, seeing victims, alleged perpetrators, defence lawyers, you kind of really get to see how the system works as a whole. And, 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 and yeah, I, I found it to be a really valuable experience and I would say to anyone considering it that it's worth certainly trying to pursue because, um, yeah, you get a real insight into how the law works in a very, very deep level. I understand that you um, then went and got your master's um, at Columbia University uh, for your master's in international law. Uh, how did that come about and why did you choose Columbia? I think I realised pretty early on that for an international career, you pretty much needed an LLM. Um, and I thought that it would be great to do it abroad and I thought that it would be great to do it in New York. So I, um, I think that was part of it. And I think that, I mean, you know, just on a side note, I think whatever you do and whatever ambitions you have, you should be having fun along the way. It's not all about career and, and opportunity one to the next, but you should be doing things that are meaningful for you on a, on a range of levels and personally as well as professionally. And so, you know, I thought, you know, a year in New York would be fantastic. Um, and Columbia's obviously got a really stellar international law program, so the two seemed like a really good fit. I also thought the States would make sense because there's a lot of good NGOs there. You know, it's a real hub for international work. And I thought that should I be able to sort of get a step into an NGO or or an organisation, then New York would be a really good place to do that from. And I think that that's certainly true. I mean, you know, big American universities do have, you know, really good programs. I mean, not just American universities, there's lots of universities around the world and they often have very good links to civil society organisations. And and I think in particular, American organisations, for better or for worse, really value someone that's had a degree from an American university. So, I mean, it really, it was a great year um, on a lot of levels. And also, I mean, it really was the stepping stone for me to get my sort of first real international legal job, which was with Earthrights International just the following year. Right. So could you tell us more about that? You know, after completing your master's, did you have some kind of career goals in mind? I really wanted to work for an NGO and I had ideas of which types of NGOs I wanted to work for. I wanted to work for something legal, something that might be strategic litigation to further human rights. And I was lucky to get a one-year fellowship with uh, Earthrights International. But I applied to a lot of jobs and it's a very competitive field. And I think that, you know, you have to 
you know, I would just as, a, as some advice to people, you know, just send out applications and try not to take it personally. There will be a lot of rejection letters. It is very competitive. Um, I think another piece of advice that I might be able to add is, okay, like I would advocate on the one hand for trying your luck and applying broadly, but also try and see what makes sense. You know, try and say, what is my added value here? You know, because I think casting the net too widely can also, you know, I mean, it can, you can lose morale if you've sent out 50 applications and don't hear back from any. So I think it's very tough. Um, I think a lot of people do get discouraged. I think that internships and, you know, fellowships and being creative around the type of work you can do, um, and taking risks is all part of it. I mean, but it can be quite discouraging and I think that people shouldn't take it personally. But if you can see, you know, I don't know whether it's a particular language that you have or a particular thematic expertise that you can bring, you might want to tailor applications to organisations that work in, in areas where that have a bit more of a niche um, because it certainly is a competitive field, like in Australia as well as abroad, there's, there's few jobs and a lot of people with a lot of interest and a lot of talented people. So, you know, all this to say is that I, I've received my fair share of rejection letters as, as I think most people. So you're kind of saying it's okay to focus and narrow in on the choices that you think really will make sense, but be creative and try and figure out how these, any of these jobs you're going for may work for you in the long term in terms of where you see yourself going. Exactly. And I think, you know, even if you decide to spend a few years working as a more traditional lawyer, like these are skills that I can see now years down the track there actually are very valuable. And so, you know, I don't think there's ever a moment that's too late to do the switch and, and move into a field or if, if you, you sort of start with like, okay, I need to just work for a few years and build up some base skills because I think a lot of organisations would see that as an asset. I'm quite interested in this part of your life um, when you, you know, were moving from grad school um, and the next couple of jobs that you held before the, before the UN. Um, could you talk us through, you know, the, the, the roles that you took and how they added to your experience and skill set? I mean, working at Earthrights was a really fascinating experience. So that year, um, our work focused around two major trials that had been, um, you know, very long in the making brought under the alien tort statute. So it was for corporate accountability for violations of international human rights law. And it was one trial against Shell and one trial against Chevron in US courts. And so it was with Nigerian plaintiffs that were trying to bring these actions to sue multinational corporations effectively for environmental and human rights damage. So very, very interesting, very, very complicated legally. Um, one of the trials actually went to trial and the corporation was acquitted, unfortunately, um, because the case is so difficult to make. Um, and, but the other trial, there was a settlement and so the plaintiffs were able to walk away with some compensation. So it was an interesting year, um, very intense work. Um, and I, I think that, you know, where I kind of came from at that point was this intersection. I'd worked in Latin America with Sahil looking at Indigenous rights, land rights, corporations, mining companies. All these issues have been something that I've been sort of working on in various capacities. Um, and so I had actually been put in touch with who was at the time the Special Rapporteur on Indigenous People and had, I approached him and asked him if he needed um, support because I knew he had a program that some of the rapporteurs have programs out of their own universities and so then 
he took me on as a legal advisor for his team. Um, so that was a really good opportunity as well. And I guess that was the bridge to the UN because I wasn't employed by the UN. I was employed by his university, which was the University of Arizona, and worked for him for quite a number of years. Um, but then really got to see the, a bit more of the UN. So I accompanied him on a mission to the Republic of Congo. We travelled we were in Geneva um, for various meetings. There's New York, there's various sort of Indigenous mechanisms that operate out of Geneva and New York. Um, so it was a real chance to see a little bit of the inside of the UN and continue to sort of draft and write reports, work on cases and, and, and go on missions, which is, you know, have the field experience. So I think it was really a fortunate combination. I mean, I had the, the necessary language skills that were helpful um, because in that kind of work, we do a lot of writing in Spanish and French and English, depending on the cases in the government. That was sort of my, my next step after a more structured NGO job with Sehil. And I was working for him freelance. And so I think during that time, I also then started to look for other projects and I did various consultancies for small NGOs. Um, and I think through that, you also get a lot of exposure, how you can see what kind of work different organisations are doing, you know, um, which can be really valuable and start to see what it is that your skill set is, what it is that you enjoy, what it is that, um, what types of organisations you'd like to work for. And so that takes us to the UN and, and your time at the UN. It sounds um, varied. It sounds exhausting at some, at some parts or, or, you know, emotionally and mentally draining to, um, to be a part of, but I mean, fascinating for, for us um, to listen to your stories about what you've been on the front lines of. So you mentioned, you know, at the start that your work on the fact-finding mission in Myanmar took some time to recover from afterward. How do you, I guess, sustain that type of work? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think that, that you know, that's why I said, I think whatever you do, you need to make sure that you're having a good life for yourself as well. Because if your only happiness is stemming from your work and then work becomes hard or, or too much, then you're not going to have a safety net to fall back into. I don't think that there's a really, you know, there's a clear answer for these kind of things, you know, this kind of what they call secondary trauma. I mean, you know, we, we, don't, we, we don't experience anything compared to the actual victims, but it is hard to listen to these types of stories and write them up and, um, you know, you end up dreaming about it and travelling to these places and, and then going home and coming back again. It's, um, it's not easy. I think for me what made it worthwhile was the sense that we were able to give these stories a platform, that we were able to let the world know, you know, what actually happened. And, and even if journalists come and tell these stories also in a very, you know, credible, excellent way, a report from the UN with the stamp on it saying that this is what the UN has found as investigated has happened. It gives the real credibility at least to, to the victim stories and the survivors. And I think, you know, what we saw is now there's a case before the ICJ, the International Criminal Court are taking up the, the case against the Rohingya. And these are all things that sort of stemmed out of the FFM work. And so I think we all felt that while difficult, it was really important and actually a privilege to be able to be in a position to let these testimonies see the light of day and not just be in a notebook somewhere or front page for one day. I mean, this report will 
stand the test of time. Um, accountability is a slow process. I'm not saying that, you know, we see what's happening in Myanmar today and there doesn't seem to be uh, much progress in that front. Um, but what's happened has been recorded and, and we, we've seen like countless times in history that it's important to do to do that work. So I think the, the knowledge and, of how important the work that we were doing um, really helped sort of us to find strength but I have to say at the end I was very very tired and I needed to have a really good few weeks and you know even a couple of months off to really fully recharge my batteries and it took quite a while and and you know it's not something that I think you ever completely forget but um, I look back and think of it as a privilege I think more than anything. The difficulty of it but mixed with the the meaning that perhaps you felt like you've you know played a part in it's I guess that's part of the the job. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. But, you know, I think um, none of this is easy, you know, to manage with family life. I've got, I've got small kids. You have to, you know, to do this kind of work, you have to leave them, go travel for a couple of weeks at a time. Um, I think particularly for women, that can be really challenging. People might not think that you're up to doing that kind of work or you could feel judged for doing that kind of work and, and leaving your family. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of elements, I think, that we all have to overcome personally and also as a society to make sure that we can all be seen as, as valuable contributors to this profession. Yeah, thanks for um, talking to that. Uh, you know, it's not to, um, you know, put women in a box about asking this type of questions like how do you manage your personal life and your professional life? But, I mean, it is something that I think I consider, like how to have a well-balanced life while also being able to dig in deep to the work that I want to do. And it yeah. sounds you're trying you know you're managing that as well I think you just have to accept that it's you know there'll be moments and it's kind of a long game and maybe there'll be a year where work is less at the forefront and then there'll be a year where other things are less at the forefront and if you can sort of ride the waves and and not assume that everything has to happen all at once immediately um, and make space for your own happiness, then I think you're going to have a more satisfying professional career as well because burning out, you know, living, living abroad without a community and family structure around your at least, you know, extended family, if you not, don't find some kind of happiness on your own level, then I think, um, you know, that, that whatever you want with your career won't, won't probably be as meaningful for you or you might, you know, have other types of regrets. So I think it's about finding some kind of balance, which isn't always easy. And, and the way that work and life is structured doesn't make it straightforward at the best of times. Um, but I think sort of somehow navigating that and finding a way and finding people to support you with that, whether it's your partner or, or other people around you, um, is really important. Um, yeah, I have to say I think that that's a really big thing because you do see people that have, sort of given up everything to try and pursue a career in this field, which, you know, can take you to pretty difficult places and, you know, witness traumas and give up uh, things, other things in your life. Um, you know, I think it's, it's great to take risks. It's great to do, you know, there, there are opportunities to have amazing global adventures and, and really do meaningful work at home and abroad. I mean, it doesn't need to be abroad. There's, there's a lot that can be done at home. And, but um, just make sure that there's some balance in that because, you know, it, it is the long game and it, it takes time to, you know, things will 
will happen when they need to happen. Absolutely. I think I, um, my millennial mind tells me that I need to have everything at once. Um, but I have to remember that there's actually a long life and career ahead of, ahead of all of us and there's time for everything, just maybe not all at the same time. Exactly, exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jackie. One, one last question. Um, in your career, has there been anything that surprised you in terms of what's been important that you didn't think would be or maybe hasn't been important that you placed a lot of stock in? I'm, I'm thinking about for us, you know, law students, the things that we try and focus on now and trying to think about what relatively does maybe carry out into the world of work. I think what you can take from law school and what is really valuable in law school and maybe what I didn't realise at the time is the sort of precision and rigour that they require of you because when you get out into the world of work and, and whether you're working on an individual case or or a situation or, or an investigation, you need to be accurate. Um, and being accurate is actually a very difficult skill and it's something that I think law school is particularly qualified to teach you. How can you write something, you know, that has power and meaning and, and advocates for your case or client or situation um, as accurately as possible? Um, and I think that law school in general does really give you that and those skills then later in life can be you know in a, in a range of different professional settings I think that being able to be very meticulous is um is a very good skill to have. Thank you that makes a lot of sense. In terms of a couple of tips I would just say apply widely you know have a bit of a thick skin um if there's any opportunities to volunteer, to publish something, um, try and do what you can in various ways. If there's internships or opportunities that, you know, you can pursue that make sense for you, then go for it. And, you know, I think there's no one path. I've, I've met a lot of people over the years and there's very many ways in and, and you know, there's no prescribed path. So do what matters to you and be happy doing it. And I think that, you know, you'll get there. Jackie, your time and insight has been so invaluable for us. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Very nice to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Think Global series. To learn more about the work Jackie's been doing, please see our Facebook page. We've also included links to opportunities in organisations such as the UN and the Centre for Justice and International Law. 